God, we, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in that, uh, that part of your personhood that uh, we can't see. But we, we, leave, uh, we believe what Jesus said when he said he was going to send the Spirit. And we believe that your Spirit is occupying this very space on this gym floor, on the second story building of this old building. But we believe your Spirit's here. And we as individuals who are sitting in these uh, chairs, uh, you've made us as spiritual beings with the capability to listen to you and to even see you. And so would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us today? Because we desperately want to connect with you, God. We want to um, listen to you and uh, we want your life in us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I think it was like Wednesday this week. We got this, if you get the local paper, you might get it in the news, you might get it in the mail or whatever. It's a Marsh uh, grocery store ad. And it just kind of struck me. I don't know why, but when I, when I pulled it out and I thought how colorful it was, and this four-day Easter spectacular. And I kind of, I don't know why, but it, you know, you see them all the time, but it struck me because I, I thought, is this, is, what, is, this, is this what I'm supposed to be excited about, about Easter? You know, a dollar sixty-seven ham, and then the really, the really kind of paradoxical moment when I saw they were actually selling asparagus on sale for Easter Sunday, and I thought that's just not right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, and, and you walk through a grocery store, nothing against Marsh or Target or Kroger. You walk through all those stores, and there's Easter this and Easter that, and and you, and then you start thinking, is this, is this what I'm supposed to get excited about? And we know it's not. But yet the question then becomes, what am I supposed to be feeling differently around Easter? And it comes with other holidays. I'll, I'll, just, I'll talk about other special days. Let's talk about, uh, okay, Valentine's Day. We know it's a day where you're supposed to, the culture tells us to, you know, buy something for somebody you love. And somehow you're supposed to remember that and feel differently. But let's be honest, when you wake up on Valentine's Day, my guess is most of us don't love our wives or husbands to a large degree more that day. And it doesn't stay at that level for the rest of our lives. Or let's talk about Martin Luther King Day. We know we're supposed to wake up that day. It's a day on, not a day off. We know we're supposed to wake up that day and think about how we treat people of other races and deal with any kind of quiet racism in our hearts but if we're honest, a lot of us get up, read the paper, thankful we don't have school that day or work that day, and go mow the lawn. But we think about it for a second, but is it supposed to, in remembering those special days, is it supposed to change anything about me? Ideally, it's supposed to, but realistically, let's be honest, I don't know that I'm any less likely to have uh, negative thoughts about other people the next day just simply because that holiday was there. That's the idea. All right, what about Thanksgiving. Ideally, the day after Thanksgiving, you wake up and you're a grateful person. And if you were a seven on the grateful scale before, the rest of your life you're now at eight. And the next year pushes you to a nine. And the next year pushes you to a ten. And all these days are supposed to do something where we change. Um, Memorial Day. I'm supposed to remember more about, supposed to be more patriotic, I suppose. But I don't know that the next day after Memorial Day, I'm, a little, I'm not more, more enthusiastic about paying my taxes. I'm not. I don't put the flag out the next day. I don't play, say the Pledge of Allegiance louder. I don't sing the national anthem with more gusto. All right? 
And then Labor Day is one of those holidays where I even forget what we're supposed to remember. But anyway, uh, and my, up in the Chicago area, if you're from there, my, my brothers who are teachers would get off of school on Casimir Pulaski Day. And I was like, what in the world are we supposed to remember on that day? Anybody knew who Casimir Pulaski was? Okay, we got some people there, right? I think he was a Polish general who fought for the Americans in one of our wars. So I'm not sure what people were supposed to remember about that day other than remember the Polish people. I don't know. And, and uh, so we remember these days. But again, but let's talk about Easter again. What? Okay, this has been Easter week, you know, the last number of weeks in Target or Kroger, wherever you were, you saw all kinds of Easter stuff and Easter asparagus on sale and Easter ham on sale. But if we're followers of Jesus or any kind, any kind of religious inclinations, we have a sense of, well, something, shouldn't there be something different about how we remember Easter? Is it just remembering kind of nostalgia? Yes, it was neat that this happened. Or is something really supposed to change about how I live my life the next days and months and years? And is there some reason why God's kind of cycled this yearly cycle of the lunar or solar system where every year we hit a day and then we've assigned a day to remember Easter? And do we forget that much that we need another day 365 days later? And what are we supposed to remember? How are we supposed to be different people because we have this day called Easter? So what we've been doing the last few uh, weeks has been a series called Remember, and we've been coming out of the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy, if you remember, is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, I had to think about that for a second. Fifth book of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy literally means the second law, Deuteronomos, second law. And it basically was Moses retelling the people God's expectations on their life. And if you remember from uh, the, the context of the book of Deuteronomy was the children of Israel, the Israelites, the Israelite nation, had been, they'd been in Egypt and they'd gotten there. If you know the history of the Bible, they'd gotten there because Joseph was, Joseph was there and they grew in number. The Pharaoh got kind of intimidated by him, decided to enslave all the Jewish people because they were threatening the Egyptian population in terms of numbers. So they're stuck in Egypt and they become slaves in Egypt. And we're talking over a million Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. And their slavery was oppressive and heavy and painful. Discouraged, they were hopeless, and it went on for a number of years. They were then, the book of Exodus accounts, they're leaving Egypt up by the upper yellow dot, crossing the Red Sea, and all of them being led toward what is now modern-day Israel, the promised land. It was the land that God had promised them. So the book of Exodus accounts this whole trail that was supposed to take just a couple weeks. They made some really bad decisions as a people in terms of some sinful decisions and that God penalized them and they wandered for 40 years to get from yellow dot on the left to yellow dot on the right, which today, if a group of us walked, it would maybe take a few weeks. So Deuteronomy, this part of Deuteronomy, Moses is standing with the people as they're about right across the Jordan River. I mean, they're here... The journey from all the slavery through the desert, they're here. They're about ready to cross the Jordan River. I mean, it's wider than this, but they're about ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that was the land of promise where God promised them abundance and goodness and plenty and rest and peace. And Moses is giving them kind of a reminder last minute 
kind of pregame, halftime, before the big thing talk to say, this is what life's going to be like. And you need to remember all the things God has done for you and all the things he's told you. And you may recall, too, that Moses was not allowed to go in the promised land because he had made some, ba- some really poor choices. So even though God honored him as many ways a leader, God said, you know, you're not going to go in the promised land. So Moses is standing before the people. Deuteronomy is really this long, long talk. I don't know. We don't know how long it took. We don't know if Moses broke it up in days, and we don't know if the people fell asleep or what they did. But it was a long address. And he tells them to remember things. And one of the things he says to remember um, is the day of Passover. All right, now, let's jump back to Exodus. Let me explain the context here. Passover was the day, the night, and then the next day in which God finally released the people from Egyptian slavery. And if you remember the story, they were to uh, kill a lamb, roast the lamb to eat for dinner, use the blood to paint over their doorposts, and God would pass over the Jewish homes. He would bring death to the Egyptian homes as the final way to break the stranglehold the Egyptians had on the Jewish people. And then and then they, were to, they left literally in the middle of the night because the Egyptian pharaoh and others finally said, okay, leave, get out of here. And they had to leave quickly. They had bread that was unleavened. That's why they eat unleavened bread during the ceremony. And when Moses was telling them, this was again Moses, you know, 40, 40 plus years prior, he's telling them, you're going to celebrate this thing called Passover, which is kind of the Jewish precursor to Easter. That's where we're going with this. Passover, he said, you're going to eat bread made without yeast, you're going to eat this lamb, you're going to do this, have all these kind of ceremonial things. And he told them in advance, this is a day to remember. In other words, you're going to, this day is going to be stuck in your calendar for years to come. It's going to be a holiday you will celebrate over and over and over again because you need to remember what I did. So then in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, Moses is repeating this instruction. He's talking about Passover again. And he says, you need to remember this day. Remember this day, this celebration. And there was this one day, he said, remember this day, because you need to remember the day that God brought you out of Egypt. Let me read this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 16, at least the part of the passage. And this is in a, a it's also called the uh, Festival of Unleavened Bread, but it's the Passover. This is Moses giving them instructions about this day and how to remember this day. And you'll notice it has nothing to do with hams or asparagus or anything else, all right? In honor of the Lord your God, celebrate the Passover each year in the early spring in the month of Abib, for that was the month in which the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Your Passover sacrifice may be in the form of a flock of the herd, and it must be sacrificed to the Lord your God at the designated place of worship. Eat it with bread made without yeast. For seven days, the bread you eat must be made without yeast as when you escape from Egypt in such a hurry. Eat this bread, the bread of suffering, so that as long as you live, you will remember the day you departed from Egypt. So as long as you live, you will remember the day you departed from Egypt. God instituted this whole ceremony, this holiday, because they were to remember the day they departed from Egypt. All right? Now, so there's something God understands about how you and I are made as human beings with our, how our brain works and how our emotions work, that he was saying, you've got to remember that day. You've got to remember the day 
in which your ancestors were brought out of Egypt into freedom. Remember that, remember that. So there's something that God knows about us that maybe we don't always understand. And there's something about us that we naturally forget. And so God builds this system into our psyches that helps us to remember, all right? So there's something about remembering that is really important. It's not just remembering like math facts. There's something about remembering something in the past that should have some kind of future implication on how I live my life, how I treat my wife, how I treat my kids, how I treat strangers or people I don't like. Somehow remembering something way back there is supposed to affect something in my life here. All right. Now, let's jump ahead to Easter. Because if God was so intent about having people remember Passover, Easter is the kind of the because of Christ's replacement of Passover, kind of the parallel of Passover. Now let's talk about Easter and say, okay, if, we're, if God's that intent about remembering some of these key things, our sense is that God really wants us to remember Easter because Christ is described as the Passover lamb. But what are we supposed to remember about Easter and how does that change how I treat people? How does that change how I live my life? All right. Now, to look at Easter, let's go, um, remember the night before he was betrayed, Jesus said, do this to remember me. That's the night they were celebrating Passover. And then the next few days, he was crucified, he was tortured, he was murdered, and then he rises from the dead. But again, let's go to Easter day now, and let's look at Easter day. Let's remember that day, the first Easter, and we're going to look at it through Peter's point of view, all right? We're going to look at Easter from the the day of Easter. We're going to remember that day from Peter's point of view and then ask ourselves, okay, what difference does remembering that day mean for me on this day, April 8th, 2012, in my life, in my house, in my family, with my friends, with my neighbors, with enemies, with people, I whatever. How does remembering that day affect this day? All right. So let's think about Peter for a second. Think about the first Easter. Easter. Peter was, some of you might know, he was a fisherman. He was kind of rough when he was called to follow Jesus. You saw the little video to start with. Um, he was kind of a rough fisherman, blue collarish, raw kind of guy. Followed Jesus for three years. Became one of the closer friends of Jesus. And he was the one when Jesus kind of implied that somebody was going to betray them, they'd all leave him. He's like, oh, no, no, I'll never, I will never, ever leave you. I'll never betray you, never. Not me. Maybe them, Jesus, but not me. And then some of you may remember the story. Jesus is arrested. He begins to get tortured and brutalized. And people see Peter nearby and they're like, hey, you, you're one of his friends, aren't you? are one of his followers. And Peter says, no, 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 not me, not me, not me. And there's even a sense that he was, you know, that he swore. So if the Bible could use, you know, asterisks and all those little symbols that comic strips use when somebody's swearing, Peter was not using clean language at this point. He was that adamant about, I don't know this guy. And somebody else said, no, no, no. Yeah, you were, you were, you were, you were with the Galilee and you were with Jesus. And Peter's like, blankety blank blank. I don't know this guy. I mean, not only was he denying Jesus, he was denying with, he was, he was full into it. Somebody did a third time, same thing. Peter's like, you know, blank, blank you. I don't know this guy. I mean, let's, let's, Peter was being raw here. Now, 
And then the rooster crowed. And if you remember, Jesus had told Peter that night before, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter goes through these three intense denials. I don't even know this guy. I don't know this guy. The rooster crows. And what does the Bible say Jesus did? Or Peter did? He wept because he thought, what a stinking failure I am. Now, stop in that moment, and there's not a person here that doesn't understand what Peter was feeling then. Because there's not a person here that hasn't sinned or done something in some way where you feel like, boy, I shouldn't even call myself a Christian after doing that. After the way I just treated that person, or after what I just did, or after this kind of secret hidden habit that people don't know about, and it's getting worse in my life. And then the rooster crows, you know, symbolically and we're like oh man and we feel what dejected defeated failure discouraged hopeless because i must really stink at this christ follower thing i mean i can't imagine how dejected, not only was Peter probably dejected in his own personal feelings, but yet he also was trying to figure out what was happening to Jesus because the the story wasn't going as he thought it was supposed to go. So when you're feeling dejected, hopeless, because you've made some really bad decisions and done some really hurtful things to yourself or others, and the story's not going like the way you think it's supposed to go, like I didn't sign up for this kind of following Jesus, then you can understand what Peter must have been feeling. And I think all of us have felt that. Because many times things happen in our lives that we think, well, Jesus, this isn't what I signed up for, and I've failed, and I've screwed things up, and I'm... So this is part of the day of Easter now. Okay, keep that in mind. This is, this is a couple of days before, but this is Peter's emotional being going into Easter. Abject failure. And there's not, again, there's not a person here that can't relate to that. Failure, discouragement, self-condemnation. A lot of us, including myself, were really good at that. And Peter must have been like deep in self-condemnation. Well, then what happens? You know, they're all hiding and running away. We have no evidence that Peter was even at the cross. We know John was and Jesus' mother. So who knows where Peter was? Probably hiding in the bushes or hiding in a house or scared to death or just somewhere crying. We don't know. You and I could both see ourselves with him doing the same thing because we know what denying Jesus has felt like in our lives or we know what life has felt like without Jesus or we know what life feels like when the story's not going like we think it's supposed to go and God doesn't seem to be orchestrating the play correctly. All right? Well, then what happens? Well, Easter morning, Sunday morning, Mary goes to the tomb and... uh, comes back and tells the disciples who are in hiding that the stone's been rolled away. So you're Peter sitting in this room, and again, it was probably dark, and they probably had, you know, sheets over the windows or whatever the equivalent would be of those days. They probably were hiding. And Peter is feeling like totally dejected. Not only did Jesus die and they saw him brutalized, But Peter knows his own failure to the degree that he's like, what a loser I am. 
probably soaking in self-condemnation and discouragement and despair because of what happened with him and outside of him with Jesus. And then Mary comes back and says, the stones rolled away. And so Peter is like, you can imagine Peter like, what, what was that, Mary? And, and let me read what happens uh, in this. Early Sunday morning, this is John 20 now. Early Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Now that's usually John. John wrote the gospel of John. And so when he, refer, he doesn't, instead of referring to himself as John, he says, he always calls himself the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. Because Jesus loved John deeply. And I don't know if it was John's way of kind of deflecting attention from himself, but that's how he describes himself. So it's Peter and John. The other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So now Peter's sitting here thinking the stones rolled away and what else has happened? But then it says, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running. And this next line I think is almost... It is, it's not normal, it's humorous because you can't keep in mind John wrote this. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You kind of wonder if years down the road, Peter's like, John, you did not beat me there. You, you cheated, you pushed me. I don't know, but the fact that John wrote that, I thought, but the other one, I got there first. I outran Peter. Peter had a little heavy weight or something. I don't know, maybe he ate too much the day before. But I, I, I laugh whenever I read that because I just, you kind of wonder if Peter and John years later would joke about that. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So again, you're Peter and you're like, and you're you're coming out of despair and darkness and self-condemnation. Places that we've all been. Hopelessness. Life's not going to change. This is as good as it's going to get. And now it's gotten worse. And he's breathing heavy. And it says they both got to the tomb. They were both running. The other one, John says, I got there first. He... John, talking about himself, he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived. You know, John had beat him there. They're both. Simon Peter arrived and he went inside. I mean, John sitting at the opening of the tomb and he sees the graves clothes wrapped in there. We don't know why, but John didn't go in. Maybe he was just, maybe they're so much in shock and they're scared and they don't know what to make of this. And he doesn't know if there's somebody else in there that's going to get him. So John's like looking here, Peter comes up and he's panting and sweating and kind of, they're all, they're all still in shock. And then Peter's like, well, I'm going in, I'm going in. And then Peter also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. Why the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. So John said, then I went in. And I saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood that Scripture said that Jesus must rise from the dead. And then they went home. The incredible transformation of Peter from self-condemnation, despair, hopelessness, fear. Life will never get better than this. Matter of fact, it's going to get worse. And then his racing to the tomb and going in there, and I mean, you can imagine when he was running there, he was, what was going on? Like, oh, 
I, you know, heart was pumping. And then he goes in there and sees the grave clothes there and the, and the head thing folded up as if someone actually took time to fold it up, which somebody apparently did. And it's not that the body was stolen because if the body was stolen, they would have taken all the grave clothes with it. But the body's gone. And Peter and John both like, bing, 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 bing. You know, the bell goes off and they're like, oh, now we get it. Now we get it. And they go back and, they, and things start to change. The hope, the, the despair and the discouragement and the fear starts to transform into kind of this realization of, wow, there's a different kind of, Jesus is way different than we even imagined. He's got power that we never thought he had. We knew he had power, but not like this. And it confirmed to them, well, he, he must be God. And then they don't, uh, a few days later, it says that they were out fishing. And so we don't know exactly if they had, we don't think they had seen Jesus at this point, but they knew something happened. And so you can see the transformation in Peter because of that day. That day radically changed things for him. Well, then they're out in a fishing boat a few days later, and they see somebody in the shore, and this person says, hey, fellows, how's your fishing going today? Well, it's Jesus. They just can't, they don't either recognize him, they can't see him, they don't have their glasses on or what. We don't know. We don't know if Jesus had a different visual look about him. We don't know. And and, and it says, then John says, um, John recognizes Jesus. Hey, he said, it's the Lord. Well, they start rowing in. What does Peter do? He jumps in the water because he wants to, he, he is so eager. He is just so entrenched in expectation. He's got to see, is this, is this, is this him? And I don't care. I, you know, it's like forget, pro, forget getting there by rowing. I'm jumping in the water and I'm going to go get there. So again, imagine Peter jumping in and kind of flailing and who knows how he did in swim lessons as a kid, but he must have been kind of flailing to get there. And then he gets there and Jesus is cooking fish. And, and you can imagine Peter's just kind of like. And then part of the conversation, Jesus feeds them all breakfast. And Jesus says to Peter, something like, uh, Peter, do you love me? And again, Peter's trying to all the emotion of the last three days is just probably swelling all over the place. He says, well, Jesus, of course you know you love me. I love you. Of course, in his mind, he's thinking about the denials. He's thinking about how he hid and failed. And then Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, well, I just said that once. I'll say it again. Yeah, I, I do love you, Jesus. I love you. And then Jesus says it a third time, Peter, do you love me? And then by then, Peter is probably both frustrated and, and discouraged, but also kind of curious, like, why do you keep asking me this? Jesus, I love you. And then Jesus says, well, feed my lambs. In other words, I, it was like the reestablishment of a relationship. And, and Peter, who had been like this self-condemning, discouraged, hopeless man 24, 36 hours prior, is all of a sudden transformed by this renewed friendship and power and this relationship with Jesus. And then it was only, what, seven, eight weeks later in Jerusalem, Jesus had already ascended in heaven, and Peter is the one who steps up on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and delivers 
uh, in preacher term, he hits a home run in terms of his sermon. Um, I have one friend of mine, every time he preaches, he tells me he hits a home run. I was like, you can't do that every time. I mean, sometimes I swing and miss, okay? I understand that. And uh, sometimes I get, get a bunt single, and sometimes I hit the ball pretty well. So in preacher, we always talk about how we do, and that's the kind of lingo sometimes you use. Peter hit a home run. Peter hit a home run. He had no notes. He had no pre-printed notes. He had no PowerPoint. He had no lighting. He had no band behind him. But Peter hit a home run, and he's preached that sermon, part of which you're ready to start the sermon off, where he tells them this is what's happening, and God raised Jesus from the dead. And it's all about because this day, this Easter day that Peter remembers vividly because he remembers what he was like before Easter day. Just like when God says, remember the Passover out of Egypt, it was because they remembered what life was like before the Passover. Slavery, fear, discouragement, hopelessness, and everything else stacked on top of that that you and I feel often. Then later on in his life, Peter writes a letter to different Christians, and it becomes one of the books of the Bible we know as 1 Peter. And uh, so this would have been years later. Peter by then was probably an older man. But the memories of, I'm sure, that day had never left his mind. And this is one thing he writes to encourage other followers of Jesus, which would include us. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I love this next line. Now we live with great expectation. See, because right here, what was, when, when Peter, before Easter day, before that day, what was Peter living in? Well, he was living in self-condemnation, self-reliance, you know, on a good day, self-reliance, kind of this macho boldness that really wasn't deep, despair after the crucifixion, discouragement, self-condemnation, all these things. And, and I'm saying that because you know and I know what it's like to live in that kind of world. Some of you may have been there this morning. Despair, self-condemnation, discouragement, hopelessness. Life's not getting any better than this. My marriage is not going to get any better than this. My, life, my personal life's not getting any better than this. My future's not, my emotional state's not going to get any better than this. This is apparently all there is, so... Yippee for Easter, I'll go buy some asparagus or something to feel happy about myself. But you know what I'm saying. I can, I can tell by your laughter, you know what I'm talking about. So Peter then says, we live with great expectation. And the word in some of your versions, some of the other versions, it's, it's this life-giving hope. So it's not just, yes, we now have hope because of Jesus' resurrection. And, and I say that in my intentional hallmark kind of tone. We have hope because of the resurrection, which kind of sounds like we're pitiful people who just need some kind of security blanket to hold on to that we call hope. But the hope the Bible talks about is not just, gee, I hope I get an A on the test. I have hope. I didn't study, but I have hope. Or I hope that girl notices me in my class, or I hope this, or I hope I get a raise at my work even though I don't deserve it. And that's not that kind of hope. The hope the Bible talks about is this solid, life-giving expectation of increased joy, hope, and power. Great expectation. So we remember 
Why do we remember? Why was Moses saying, remember the Passover? Remember that night? Why do we remember Easter? Because when you remember, when we remember what God has done, it leads us then to live with great expectation for what he can do in your life and in my life. There's something about how God's wired, how we think and how we feel that by remembering the stories of what he's done in the past of lies of ordinary goofball people like Peter or ordinary tons of men and women and kids like the Israelites back in Egypt, if he can do, if God has power to do things in their lives to bring them out of fear, self-condemnation, discouragement, slavery, and he brings them to a place where he says, I live with great expectation. No, my life isn't perfect today. No, because of Easter, my bank account isn't super full. My marriage isn't perfect. And my kids don't always obey me. All right? That doesn't, that's not what Easter means. What Easter means in the life of Jesus inside of me means I live with a power that comes from outside of me and a hope that comes from us outside of me. And I can have hope for my life and my character. I can have hope for my marriage, hope for my family, hope for how I relate to people who hurt me and how I can forgive people. I have hope that I can be the kind of person that I have always dreamed I can be and it's the kind of person you've always dreamed you could be. Full of life, full of joy, full of forgiveness, full of integrity, full of power, full of tenderness, full of courage, full of strength. That's the kind of people we want to be because that's what the Bible talks about. You, you become fully alive people with fully alive marriages, fully alive relationships with our kids and our parents. And we forgive people who hurt us, not out of denial and out of, oh, well, it didn't hurt me, but it's out of a position of strength. And it starts breathing life into people because you forgive people, you bring life to them because they then experience the, the grace of God through you. So if for this day on Easter, as we remember Easter Remember that God has power to change your life. Not just get you into heaven after you die. Yes, he has power to do that. And yes, that's a huge part of the whole picture of our future. But that God has power to help you live an eternal kind of now life. Like right now, you can live with resource from the spirit of Jesus into you to be the man or the woman or the teenage girl, teenage boy that you've longed you could always be. Um, and just like Peter realized, and just like men and women throughout the history of the Christianity have realized, you, just, you, you have to let go of your grip on your own life, and you have to have confidence that God can do whatever he wants to do, and you give him outright permission to do whatever he wants to do, and he'll get you to that place. Let me pray. Jesus, we are grateful that uh, Easter means so much more than uh, eggs and bunnies and bonnets. We're grateful for those kind of things that help us kind of get some kind of a celebratory hook into Easter. But the deepest hook we need to be hooked on is the way you change people. And by people, I mean us. I mean those of us sitting in these chairs who perhaps this week are coming out of discouragement and failure. Those who sit in these chairs who are uh, still struggle with that part of their heart that screams out with self-condemnation in certain times of their days. Because Jesus, uh, we want to have the boldness that you gave to Peter. We want to have the grace and the strength 
and the tenacity that you gave Peter. We want to have the forgiveness that you gave Peter. And so we offer ourselves up to you, Jesus, and we remember your death and your resurrection. And in remembering, uh, would you help us live with great expectation? Not with self-pity, not with survival, hold on till you come back so we can make a life better then. We want to have great expectation now of the kind of people we can be now. And we're grateful, Jesus, uh, that you promised this, that when you begin work in us, you promise to complete it. So we're all at different s- stages of those journeys, but we know your promises. You're going to finish what you started in us, and we're grateful. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.